Ladies and gentlemen, by way of introduction, this is a film about trickery and fraud, about lies. Tell it by the fireside or in the marketplace or in a movie. Almost any story is almost certainly some kind of lie. But not this time. No, this is a promise. During the next hour, everything you'll hear from us is really true and based on solid facts. This is the Diabolique webcast, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead. Talking with me again is David Kleiler. David's a former film professor at Babson College and the former artistic director of the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Brookline, Massachusetts. And joining us is film critic Peter Keough. Peter is the longtime film critic for the Boston Phoenix and is currently a film critic for the Boston Globe, where he reviewed Orson Welles' 1952 film, Othello, which we'll be talking about on this episode. Othello was recently released on Blu-ray in France by Carlotta Films. And we're also going to talk about Orson Welles' 1974 film, F for Fake, which has just been released on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection. Now, on to the discussion. Oh, okay, what I was going to say is this is going to be edited. F for Fake is... is uh, Wells is exposing this guy, and I can't, I can't for the life of me remember his name. That's because he's a fake. Yeah, it may not even be his real name. But it's one. Uh, there are two fakes in it. Actually, it's the guy who wrote the uh, phony biography. Oh, of that's right. Howard Hughes. Hughes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Clark, uh, Clark, not Clark Clifford. He was the secretary. Of, he was the secretary of defense. Clifford something. Clifford Irving. Yes. Right. And then there's also the. Uh, the uh, master forger of painters. Yeah. And then the, the film itself turns out to be fake, and it's it's just like a mirror of different fakeness uh, mm. illusions. And uh, it starts out with a magic trick, and the whole thing turns out to be a kind of magic trick, I guess. Would you say the entire film is an essay? Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's kind of like a Borges essay, actually. It sort of like mm. turns in on itself several times. And I mean, an essay rather than... It, it's... An aesthetic essay, the, the form of the essay is, is, is as important as the actual content. Well, what is great about it, I know that when I first saw it, the first two things, we got these great, you know, believable, but, um, you know, exposures of, fa- of real fakes. And then the last part of the thing, from a storytelling standpoint, the third one. Don't give away the ending. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's the most compelling piece of narrative of the three, and one is prone to believe it uh, because it's so well told, whereas the others are sort of random, and clearly that's part of the design of the film as well. I think it's an extremely clever film. Doesn't he appear at the beginning of the film, though, uh, dressed as a magician, and wasn't he doing his gallow wine things as a magician? Uh, No, I think he's doing a trick with uh, some kids. I I forget the exact trick, but he starts out with like a a simple magic trick with some children, I think, at the beginning. For my next experiment, Ladies and gentlemen, I would appreciate the loan of any small personal object from your pocket. And then at the end, he does a narrative trick because the story that he tells seems so compelling and true that you're, you're, you're brought into it. It involves Picasso. Who's the woman that he was with, too? Became his uh, love. Olga, Olga, what? I should Kuna have known that name. Um, um, it's a really, she's beautiful. Yeah. Um, Kazar? Kadar, yeah, yeah. She, uh, act, that wasn't her real name, actually. No. <laughs> no. She was his last... Oja, uh, Oja... Oja Kadar. Kadar. That's yeah. it. All right, you win this one. 
Okay. I'll get the next one right. <laughs> okay, fair enough. She's uh, she's still around. In fact, um, she was in the New York Times last week because um, the news is Bogdanovich and uh, producer Frank Marshall are putting together uh, the footage from uh, Wells' other unfinished film, uh, The Other Side of the Wind. That, that was the film that, uh, that's been in the Times. That uh, It's been sort of bounced around a while, isn't it? That, uh, yeah. I just remember from the uh, for fake that there seemed to be an inordinate amount of time spent Wells following her around, mm. um, shooting her butt and watching other men sort of ogle her. I'm not sure <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure exactly what purpose that served, but it did sort of indicate that he was um, like an older man that was sort of smitten by this younger uh, woman, and I don't know what their relationship was. But. That's an unusual story. Yeah. I think of F for Fake as the last film Orson Welles had complete control yeah. of, or one of the rare, one of the only films he actually had uh, uh, complete control of. Um, well, even, uh, even Othello, Othello, he had he complete control of. He was make changes. Othello had complete control of, although he didn't have complete control over the, the circumstances of making it. Yeah. Um, everything in it was his own decision, but the Well, uh, there were some changes the to the American release. Really? Uh, just... In the European release, the film did not have written credits, and Wells uh, did a voiceover uh, announcing the cast. For the American release, the distributor insisted on having credits. Oh. It's something like that. Well, I thought it's also something of a magic act, uh, given the fact that it took him four years to make it, and magic was in the editing room, making it all seem more or less um, uh, cohesive. Mm-hmm. It, it the magic was like um, getting a cast of crew of 50 people together and uh, arriving in um, someplace in Morocco with no um, no money and no uh, costumes and then putting together the best scene in the movie which is that uh, bathhouse scene where they, mm. oh, yeah. that he didn't have the costumes so he, he did it without costumes he did it with big yeah. towels but he was able to uh, like uh, spin all of the um, all of the vicissitudes of making the movie, all of the, the problems and the catastrophes, the near catastrophes into part of the movie itself. So it was like, uh, I mean, he's an auteur, not just uh, of the film, but also of the situation. He's able to use all of the medium, which is not just the play and, and the, the filmmaking process itself, but also the, the uh, circumstances surrounding the making of the film as part of the finished artwork. Hmm. He even had um, problems with the availability of his actors. And, uh, yeah, I think there were four Desdemonas. Oh, really? There were three that were on screen, and one that was a um, the voice for the actual Desdemona that was on screen, dubbed hmm. voice but, for... Well, she was uh, French, wasn't she? She was French, yeah. Yes. You wouldn't certainly know that from what we see. Yeah, she's dubbed by, um, I think it was an actress who was in a stage version of Othello that he was in. And I think... Uh, Mikhail McLemore was um, always Othello throughout the. Uh, no, oh, I think, Iago. I, no, no. There was somebody Iago. Yeah, yeah actually, yeah. there was another. There was another uh, actor playing Iago. Who's the guy that played Bernstein in um, Citizen Kane? Oh, I know. I yeah. Couldn't recall. Anyway, he was supposed to play Iago, and they shot a lot of footage in Venice, and then he pulled out of the production because he didn't like. He didn't think he was. Uh, he was tired of being cast as a ugly person in hmm. Wells's movies so he pulled out and Everett um, Sloan yeah exactly wow. and um, he got McLemore to uh, who's, who's actually the first person to, to give him a job in, in Dublin in the 30s when he went over there 
as like a 17 or 16 year old and said he was a famous Broadway actor and they didn't believe him, but he was working for free, so they, they used him. Hmm. Yeah, he, they, they, they go way back. You know, after all he went through to make this movie, it ends up winning the uh, Palme d'Or. Well, why don't we let our audience know what he went through to make this movie? That would be a good way to contextualize it. And it's it's significant in Orson Welles' canon. Well, the the story Peter just told was it was definitely a good example. Arriving in Morocco, finding out that uh, your producer is bankrupt and 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 uh, the crew not having uh, any costumes, so they had to resort to filming uh, in a in a bathhouse is yep. what they could find. He also, when he was uh, the Genghis Khan movie, the Black something or other, when he was shooting that, he used the costumes from that. Oh, for, that's right. Didn't he it's insist on having one of the costumes lined with fur or lined with velvet on the inside? Uh, it sounds then, like him. And Could then be. after the movie wrapped. Oh, yeah. He then he, the, turned, the then he turned it inside out yeah. and used it for, I think that's true. Yeah. It appears in Othello. This, yeah. Uh, and he, he did it in like four different Morgan. locations. He did uh, in, I think, Spain. He did it in Morocco, uh, Venice. And... Um, he would start a fight, uh, like I think a sword fight started in Venice, and then they had to finish it up in Morocco. Hmm. And it's like uh, it's like a masterpiece. It, it's sort of an illustration of Kuleshov or Podovkin's montage theory that you don't really, you know, it doesn't have to be, uh, you deceive the, the viewer into thinking that there's a connection between two shots, hmm. even though that they're separated by time and hundreds and thousands of miles. Wow. Um, but it's also, uh, I think it's probably the one of the uh, greatest achievements of mise-en-scene, just that opening scene alone, which is uh, the funeral of um, Desdemona and Othello. See, I gave away the... Oh. <laughs> gave away the ending, yeah. Yeah, they were trying to censor me, but I gave it away anyway. <laughs> well, and, the ending uh, is the beginning. Is yeah. The ending. Well, you can do a notorious thing with that, because after all, well, the thing begins with, you know, like Citizen Kane. We can do that. We can do a notorious thing there. Yeah. It begins with a funeral. That's true. And of course, it's sort of interesting. He commits suicide, uh, and it's a Catholic thing. But uh, so anyway, I guess he didn't bother back in those days about whether it was who committed suicide. It, oh, I thought. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, again, we get yeah. with the ending. In Shakespeare, we sort of figured that out. You're dizzying me with your. You're jumping from one <laughs> one movie to the next. I, I lost track there. Yes, he does kill himself. You know. The way it's filmed, the uh, the camera angles and the blocking are just incredibly impressive. You know, I, I sort of got to thinking that uh, as we get deeper into the movie, uh, Wells is filming through through uh, through things like like uh, gates and uh, bars and and uh, there, there's obstructions and it's yeah, like Othello's caught in the web. Yeah, there, there's a. A motif that goes throughout of imprisonment. I mean, it starts with, mm. in addition to the, the the funerals, it starts with Iago being dragged through the crowd, and put in an iron cage and sort of, and lifted up, suspended over the the, the town square, mm. and that that kind of enclosure imprisonment. The the architecture of the film starts to like um, paralyze and uh, uh, entrap all the characters, and it's just the same way that the the structure of of the play, which is a tragedy, it entraps the characters. It's like an inevitable kind of mm. fate that uh, mirrors the the structure of the uh, of the mise en scène and the and the, and the sets. There's something I think there is a line in it about a tangled web that trying to weave or something like that. 
So that the imagery, that imagery is thoroughly appropriate hmm. for the sort of plot that Iago hatches. Some of the shots are reminiscent of uh, Citizen Kane with the low angle and you can see the ceiling and uh, uh, there's some uh, uh, deep focus and uh, characters in the distance that come into the foreground. Oh yeah, like that opening shot alone is like four different levels of depth. You got the, uh, well you start out with uh, the, uh, the dead Othello upside down and then you, you go, there's one procession, his procession goes in one direction and then it, Desdemona's goes in the next direction, like a little further back, and then in the foreground you see Iago being dragged through the crowd and put into an iron cage. So you get all kinds of depth of field going on. Every scene there's like three or four layers. <clears throat> One of my favorite shots is the uh, there's a scene where Rodrigo, who is kind of the lackey of Iago and his his sort of tool in in mm -hmm. implicating Othello and and uh, Claudio. Is it Claudio? Claudio, yes. Yeah, Claudio, that who he, he convinces uh, Othello is is the lover of Desdemona. That's Cassio. Cassio, sorry, Claudio is somebody else. Is actually my hairstylist. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, Rodrigo is is the uh, lackey that uh, Iago uses to to set up Cassio, and there's one scene where he's kind of uh, he gets beaten up by Cassio, and then he ends up in this uh, this kind of like Moorish. Uh, hallway and there's a and there's a pool of water and and uh, and a reflection of uh, the hole in the ceiling of the sky. So it's like this: you got him in the foreground, you got this mirror of water behind him, and then Iago's pet dog comes through, and you, you can see the reflection of Rodrigo in the in in the in the water. And the pet mm -hmm. dog comes through and and sort of walks through the water and disrupts the the image of uh, Rodrigo. So it's kind of a metaphorical, right. uh, multi-layered image that that conveys like in the same way that shakespeare's poetry you know in, in his in the play itself conveys many layers of meaning that he, in one shot he's able to convey uh so much more than you know just the plot hmm. it's like this microphone here makes me feel like i'm in an iron cage well uh there is a scene where wells where uh, othello looks into the circular mirror and sees a warped vision of himself so I'm thinking, uh, you know, cracked reflections, uh, Othello losing his mind, that kind of representation. It's all about, it, you know, in many of um, Shakespeare's plays, the theme is appearance and reality. Like uh, in Hamlet, he says, uh, I know not seems, although he does pretend to be somebody else all through the, the play in order to, to find out what the truth is, what, what lies behind the, the, uh, the facade of uh, Claudio. Right. Um, That's right, Claudius. Claudius. Oh, in oh yes, yeah. in, in Hamlet. Yeah, Claudius. In this case, it's like Iago obviously has a facade, but then so does um, Othello. His his public persona is of this like incredibly accomplished um, military leader who's who's the master of every situation. He has this very romantic kind of love for Desdemona, but then Iago is able to play with lies below the surface uh, and, and reveals that the, the, the kind of passions that underlie all people and mm. that end up destroying him. And he does that by, by a false appearance himself. He's the master of false appearances mm. and Othello also has a, a, a facade, but he's not aware of it. So he can't deal with 
the fact that things aren't what they seem, including himself. And actually, Iago has a line, he says that line when he's talking to Rodrigo at the beginning, when he's sort of announcing what he's going to be doing. Uh, you know, I hate the war and that kind of thing. But he says, I am not what I seem. Yeah. yeah. And he, he has, I am not what I line, am. Right. I am not what I am. Yeah, yeah, it's right there. And of course, the pride of Othello, uh, he, you know, be, bewildered that his fall from grace and stature, but he's created, he has, I think, a line, I've done the state some service. I don't know whether it's in the film, but it's in the play. And he wants, he wants to, he has to, wait a minute, I need to be recognized for something, not unlike Coriolanus, say, the yeah. other Shakespeare. This is Iago you're talking about? Or? No, this is, this is Othello now. Oh, Othello is, yeah, Othello is like, uh, he is uh, defeated uh, the Turks or some, right? Uh, and, he, and he returns in like this great uh, triumph at uh, one point in the, in the, uh, in the play and in the film. I mean, he's, he's, he's an accomplished guy, everybody. Right. He's like the top man in Venice, in Venice. This may seem like a funny question, but do you think that uh, Iago was jealous of Desmondia? Desdemona, I Desdemona. think called. And, uh, I've actually got a case he, of he Desdemona. wanted the attention of Othello? Oh, yeah. yeah well, that's a, that's a common uh, interpretation that it's like a suppressed homosexual attraction between Iago and, and Othello and that uh, he is... Uh, jealous of Desdemona and uh, the fact that he loves Othello and can't have him. He wants to destroy Othello and also Desdemona in, in the most you know, despicable and, and brutally ironic way possible, mm. utilizing. Uh, he's also probably envious of Cassio because Cassio has been elevated to a position higher than mm -hmm. his. So he's, he's envious of, uh, of all those you know, relationships, but I think that his, his He's envious of um, Desdemona and uh, and has a suppressed attraction, sexual attraction to Othello. As Peter and I were saying, uh, we talked about it last week a little bit, and it's also, I sort of feel the film is, as the structure of the film noir and its brevity and all of that, I just, it seems more clear. But what did Peter say last week? It was like, it's a film noir where the femme fatale is Iago, not a woman. Hmm. And so that is... A way. But who is Othello in love with? Is he really in love with Desdemona? It seems like um, it's, it's more of an image kind of thing that it seems their relationship shows no real passion in, in the film. I it is think. cold. You're right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he doesn't really show any passion toward, toward Desdemona until he believes that she's deceived him. And uh, then his, uh, you can tell that the, uh, the, even through the diction of, of his dialogue, he starts out, he has these very oratund, very sort of fluent uh, orations. Like when he first enters the scene, when uh, he's uh, being um, reviled by Desdemona's father, mm. uh, and he threatens to kill him because he doesn't want um, Othello marrying his daughter. And then he just sort of enters the screen uh, as these, these men are like, angry and, and showing an impulse to, to, to do him in. He just enters this, and everything sort of like becomes calm and he just in a very resonant voice delivers this speech and explains how he and Desdemona fell in love and, uh, and he kind of like placates the whole situation. Most potent, grave and reverent seniors, my very noble and approved good masters, I've taken away this old man's daughter. It is most true. True, I have married her. The very head and front of my offending at this extent. No more. But then as Iago plays more and more on his 
his more baser instincts, he loses that fluency. He becomes more and more uh, losing his uh, train of thought, much like myself, um, repeating himself, uh, you know, going out of iambic pentameter now and then, and uh, finally becomes uh, a um, inarticulate creature driven by the passion that he clearly, he didn't have that kind of passion uh, romantically, but in terms of being jealous and, and murderous, he, that's, that's when he discovers his passion. Hmm. So he doesn't really seem to be in love with, I, I think he might be more of a narcissist than hmm. as much of a narcissist as any of the other characters. And it's true, you know, when at the ending, it's, it, a lot of the talk at the end is about his own image. His yeah, own, really. And, and that's yeah. really it. And it's not about the, oh my God, I screwed up and my, I, I killed my trophy wife. Uh, it, it doesn't go in that direction. Yeah, it's like it's it's the kind of thing that you hear even today in uh, the the all too frequent uh, news stories about boyfriends and husbands killing their wives. It's they almost never express remorse for the person they kill, but how much agony they've gone through, and that it's uh, they're concerned about themselves. They they and the the woman the victim is, is, is more of an extension of them of themselves or a possession rather than an actual human being. And I think that in this film, and also in Hamlet, you get Ophelia is not really uh, dealt with a, by Hamlet as, as, a, as an individual human being. He has no empathy for her. I don't think Othello has empathy for anybody either, which is maybe one reason why he's so easily gulled by Iago, because he can't yeah. see below the surface and feel other people's uh, he's feelings. Un, he's unable to trust. He, uh, you well, he trusts uh, Iago. Desdemona. He, he, he trusts, trusts Iago. The, the wrong guy. And he, uh, Iago is able to, to manipulate that trust, so he stops trusting the people he should trust, which would be his best friend and Lieutenant Cassio and Desdemona. Hmm. It sounds as though you're painting Othello as a sociopath. Uh, I think he's driven into being a sociopath, that he had it lingering within himself. I think that he is a person who uh, is more, re more concerned about himself and actually his image of himself rather than his, and he's not very self-reflective. I mean, he can't mm. see below the surface of his own achievements and his own um, uh, role and, uh, and honors in, in Venice to, to a person who can suffer base emotions. And, and therefore he is um, uh, easily manipulated by somebody who is, who's a genuine sociopath, if not psychopath, which is mm. Iago, who, yeah. who, is, who is aware of emotions below the surface including his own, and is able, uh, by through that knowledge, he's able to manipulate it. And, he, you know, he obviously dis, uh, discerns within Othello the kind of murderous rage that, uh, not to give away the ending, but he has within himself. He might, might want to qualify him more as a narcissist, somebody who, mm -hmm. like, can't really see beyond his, his own self-image. And his self-image is a good one. He's like a, a very distinguished, brilliant soldier, a, a leader. Um, he's described, I think, as the, as the number one man in Venice. Um, so he has this, this image that's like impeccable, but he doesn't really see below that image until it's too late. And even then, he, uh, he doesn't see the tragedy in terms of him killing the one person who really loves him, but in terms of him like, uh, well, he does say that I threw away a, a jewel more precious than Mind the the he, he quotes a proverb where somebody or a story where some somebody throws away a, a jewel that's more precious than their entire tribe. So he does recognize that that's what he did, but 
uh, it's in terms of his own suffering rather than his killing another person. Hmm. Well, in the broader context of Shakespeare, despite the fact that I like Othello because it is the, no, it's, it's, it was an old-time melodrama, and I kind of like it. It doesn't have the complexity. Othello is one of the least interesting of uh, Shakespeare's heroes, whereas Iago is far more interesting. And, and what a performance by Michael McLemore. My God, he's such a rat. And this was his first, that, first performance, movie performance. He's been a very distinguished stage actor. But. Mm. And also, um, MacLeamore was, um, he had a similar sort of attraction to Wells himself. So it sort of mirrors their <laughs> right. own real life. Rea- uh, but, but Wells obviously was, was aware of that and mm. was not deceived by MacLeamore the way that Iago deceived Othello. But he did, I think he maybe used that relationship in real life, both of them, to uh, intensify the performances. It's interesting that uh, Wells made the point that uh, throughout our lives, everybody eventually meets an Iago somewhere, somehow. And that's actually in Three Amigos. Remember when they said everybody has an El Guapo in their life? <laughs> I think that there's always an Iago or an El Guapo. Right. And um, in, in the case call. of... Uh, in the case of this movie, it's it's just a ratty guy named Iago. And in the case of Three Amigos, it's just a, a big evil guy named El Guapo. And Iago is he's presented so distastefully, so disgusting. I can see why. Uh... I think he's kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, MacLeamore, Mac- MacLeamore was a very handsome guy, and he was just starting to go to seed at this point in his life. Hmm. But if you see early pictures of him, he's really kind of dashing but at this point he uh he, he was like wearing a wig and used to put on a lot of makeup and wells talked about how when he was setting up the movie how uh embarrassing it was to take him out to restaurants because he he looked like this orange guy with a wig falling off he had so much makeup on uh he had been he you know he had been quite a, a looker at at one point hmm. as was wells You'd think that, uh, I guess you can kind of understand that the actor who was cast prior to uh, MacLeamore was uh, concerned about uh, th- that look. And who was he again? That, that oh, Everett Sloan. All right, Everett Sloan. Why do I can't, can't I remember? Well, I think the Iago thing, I'm, there are two things that we haven't talked about. First, well, I can talk a little bit about my feeling about this fits into Shakespeare's work, but what attracted Wells to this hmm. and what, is in this film that, you know, apart from the cinematography, what is in there that we see uh, that, that is, is pure Wells? Uh, Everything. Yeah, well, I guess that's true. <laughs> that is true. And even, but what's interesting, um, in taking the character of Iago, which I still find more interesting than Othello, um, that the abruptness of the beginning where he, he announces, you know, I hate the more. Okay, fine. Get that over and out. No, no yeah. exposition. Very little hint of, of cause. Um, and so that leads us all to do the shrink analysis of, of, of Iago. But it, and that sort of the abruptness of the beginning, which isn't a great tradition of medieval drama. And in, in, in some ways, like you go to Richard III, which is earlier than this, of course. And one of the first words that Richard says, I am a villain. Okay, get that over with. We know that. And he acts accordingly the rest of the way through. I hate the war. Boom, it's out of the way. And we're going to see what he does. I find it also interesting that both in Shakespeare and in Wells, um, uh, when it all comes to a disastrous end, Iago chooses not to speak. He is what he is. He's us who interpret his character. 
But I find that I find that really interesting here. Hmm. The Wells, the Othello speaks a lot, uh, but Iago um, is fascinating for uh, to the audience. I think in terms of his his Machiavellian plans to do in Othello. Here's what I'm going to do, and you know, without motivation. Yeah, he's the only really. Um, well, he's the only person that really knows what he wants or who he is, mm -hmm. and he announces it at the beginning. So and it's a very it's, simple mission. In yeah, and so he he knows this, and he just manipulates his own image and also that of um, his victims, and is able to accomplish it. So the fact that he's the only, really the most self-aware character. Um, allows him to achieve what he wants, hmm. which he must know is going to end up in his own self-destruction too. Although he does kill his wife to keep her quiet. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, since he eliminates um, Othello and Cassio, does that leave him as the person who would be most likely to be in power in, in Venice? Could that be part of his um, motivation that he it's like a way of reaching the top by eliminating the obstacles in between. Mm. I never really thought about that. I'm not sure the text either Shakespeare or Wells um, uh, addresses that. I just think, I just see him as a carryover from a lot of what went on uh, when they do the morality plays, where Shakespeare's early plays come directly out of. Uh, you go to see the, the play, not for the good guy, but for the bad guy. And I know that Iago, as I said, I, I find him much more interesting his scene's much more interesting uh, than Othello has. Hmm. And I think that's true of the play. It's, I don't think it's a flaw necessarily. Just, you see the tradition out of which he comes. I've seen a few productions of Othello, and in at least one of them, you get a chance to see the interpretation of Othello, of Iago, being he's having fun being this mean. I mean, he's enjoying the success of his duplicity. The hmm. audience still hates him, but we see him enjoying himself. Hey, this is working. And um, I don't. Well, I wouldn't see the point of Wells doing that in his film version. But it is a way of of looking uh, of dealing with the Iago character, because uh, also Shakespeare doesn't even take. We, we sort of we see Iago as doing evil because we don't have we have sympathy for Othello and, and Desdemona, mm. and uh, so we just see him as just raw evil, mm -hmm. but. There is at least one production of this section where the Iago character seems to take joy in just being purely malevolent. And the uh, other evil characters, uh, like uh, Macbeth, doesn't seem to be very happy about being evil. He's, no, he, he suffers su a lot. He suffers a lot. That was the film that, that the uh, Shakespearean film that uh, Wells made before um, Othello. Right, it's, and he did it Macbeth. in what twenty-one days, as opposed to four years. Yeah, and it was still it was like a it was. It was a disaster because he uh, sort of left. I mean, he did this with um, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons that he, he left before the cutting was done and so that the uh, studio ended up cutting it and making it uh, you know, much less than it would have been. In this case, he left when the, um, the last sound edit or, or the last editing for Macbeth was being done and they, they, like, they changed the, uh, the dialect. He had it in the Scottish dialect and they put it into like plain English and so hmm. forth. So he like the habit of... Yeah. Of uh, making a movie and then and choking at the last minute, just leaving. He, he left for for Europe in the case of um, Macbeth, and while he was away, the the studio is uh, Republic, I think, the cheap one of the B, B uh, studios were 
really annoyed that he wasn't there to to fine tune the picture and mm. and they ended up like having to do it themselves and meanwhile he was over out in Europe trying to put together all these uh other projects which all, most of which fell through i think he also did that for mr arcaden uh, yeah confidential report yeah or maybe he was fired well he stuck so. with this thing for all four years but it is interesting and in flipping through the text again uh both at the beginning of the film where we get plunged into uh, Iago's treachery. A lot of the political stuff, just, just you know, this is 90 minutes long for a play that will run two and a half hours. I mean, and there's a lot of great visual stuff in Othello. And yet... You, the first part is like uh, uh, almost 10 minutes and there's no dialogue. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of just nonverbal sequences in the film, which makes it fascinating. And you know, all the stuff hmm. you were talking about, enclosures and webs and gates and things like yeah. that. Uh, it's magnificent to look at and amazing that he got it done. But fine, at the beginning, where he cut out a lot of stuff at the beginning, uh, and at the end, it almost feels a little bit rushed at the end. It, it goes on for, in text anyway, for uh, 20 or 30 pages, whereas we get through, the everybody just sort of dies all at once, and whoop, we're off with the thing, which is fine. But I've often felt in watching, say, Magnificent Abersons, where he did leave the project, um, in terms of dramatic structure, uh, Abersons feels a little rushed at the end. Well, and, that's because it was cut by... Right. Uh, and it was cut yeah. by the studio, yeah. But here, you know, it, it, Iago does this thing, and it's, it's all over. Uh, and Othello does that, and it's, it's all very quick. But uh, it's amazing that he told a story that it would take two, two, hour, two and a half hours to put on stage in 90 minutes with all the visual flourishes that are in the film. It's a, an efficient streamlining. That's why I, I feel like, you know, they have that, you know, it came closer to me to seeing it as a film noir Hmm. which, of course, Wells did a few of. Wasn't he against uh, having his film seen as a film noir? Was, I, I, wonder I don't if, see how he could. I mean, Lady of Shanghai, uh, it's definitely a film noir. noir. Well, speaking of deceptive appearances, uh, F for Fake is, uh, is, a, is a fine example of uh, something to uh, appearing to be what it is not. And uh, it's just been released by Criterion on, uh, on Blu-ray for the first time. It's quite something if you haven't seen it. It's quite a, uh, a piece of filmmaking. You know, I, I imagine it is something that uh, Wells took great joy in, uh, in editing at his, uh, at his uh, editing console. And, uh, as well, it's in the movie, film. yeah. You see him yeah, there's doing a fair it. amount of the movie where he's just sitting behind his editing machine. Yeah, puffing uh, on a cigar. Pontificating. Yeah, wielding his great gut about... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's clearly something that he, he he really enjoyed doing. First of all, because he was actually making a movie, but uh, he's like in every scene, his voice is in every scene anyway, mm. and uh, it's the best toy train in the. Is that how we describe the best toy train in the world? The um, hmm. the Hollywood or making movies, but he was you know he he had complete control of what he was doing. He was like playing games with viewers' expectations. The theme was fakery, and the film itself was fake in many ways, and he sort of gloried in the fact that it was it was a fake. It's a great final uh, reflection on his own career. I always, when I think about F for Fake and the Wells persona in the film, I'm still reminded in, in Kane, and, you know, when he buys the newspaper, I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. I think it would be fun to make a movie. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the, and there, there's a kind of a way that looking over uh, Wells' career, it seems like, certainly F for Fakes seems like the product of a man who's had fun making movies in spite of all of the of the trials and tribulations. Yeah. 
and also in F for Fake, similar to uh, Othello, he had to respond to changing circumstances because Clifford Irving, who is one of the fakes, I can't remember the name of the counterfeiter, but yeah. he had written Camille a biography yeah, of, of this guy. And initially in the movie, he was um, being interviewed and, and utilized as a source for the, the other fake. Mm. You, oh, you, right. It's a double fake. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it turns out as they were making the movie, it was discovered that Clifford Irving had uh, written a fake biography of Howard Hughes. Oh, so that's right. It, so this was in the yeah. midst of making the movie. So all of a sudden became a double. another fake who had written a biography of a fake. And mm. it, was, it was also, as it turned out, to be in many ways a fake biography. The guy who, it wasn't really his, his name. He had like a completely fabricated background. Uh, everybody in the movie has, except maybe for Wells, who's like sort of like the master of all of the, the ma magician who's like uh, manipulating all of these illusions. Everybody in the movie is, is not what they seem. They, they want to be someone that they're not. And yet they get to live the life of success in some sense. Uh, the, the forger, whose name I don't remember, uh, is... Uh, <laughs> I think Emil de Horis. Oh, uh, yeah, you're yeah. right. I think yeah, I like the forger who we don't remember. <laughs> so much he, uh, for immortality, right? You just saw the movie so, uh, like a week ago, and now I can't remember his name. <laughs> uh, greatly loved by the, uh, the people. He, uh, I guess he lived on uh, Ibiza, yeah. on an island. Um, greatly loved by everyone around him. He was kind of the life of the party. As a, as a, as a gay person. That he had been, he had served time in jail. There's a, there's a certain point in the movie where mm -hmm. he talks about being in jail. I don't know if he was arrested in Ibiza or where he had been living previously, but he right. had he had been busted for like some uh, activity, some some gay activity, and uh, he was uh, like there's a, there's an ellipsis in the movie where he talks about uh, I had spent some I had some trouble or something like that, and they don't, don't they, really go into detail um, about that. Uh, isn't there a point made that Harvard might have purchased one of his fakes? There, there was a there was a new the there was a new uh, documentary out about a guy who uh, I can't remember the name of it even though I wrote the review about three weeks ago who uh, had sold a series of fakes to many different museums all over the country but they he didn't sell them the thing is that they couldn't prosecute him because he gave them his donations hmm. so he he uh, he was like this very strange man who. Uh, whose hobby was duplicating the style or the exact uh, images of, of, of great painters and then going to um, museums, usually smaller museums that didn't have the facilities to figure out that whether they were um, fakes or not, and, and, and then pretending to be somebody like a wealthy donor and then giving them the... Hmm. And the thing is that they can't prosecute him because he didn't sell it to him. He just gave it to him. Like well, the Louvre fake and, is certainly uh, Wells having fun. It's his it's last movie, too. Film. David, you were at the uh, opening of the film, the premiere in Harvard Square, weren't you, at the, uh, the Orson Welles? It was at the Orson Welles, yeah. yes. Were you there when Orson Welles was there? No, I wasn't there then. Oh. That's too bad. That wasn't something yeah. I would have loved to have been at. I just remember loving the film. But no, I was not there at the premiere. Yeah. But Orson Welles did come to the Orson Welles. I guess that was for Othello. Or, uh, no, it was for Ever Fake. We, we premiered uh, for fake at uh, the uh, Wells. Orson Welles. But, Were you working there then? No, that was before my time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that was like a, the, where the film came out, like 79? Yeah, I think so. I started working there like a couple years later. Hmm. But he, yeah, you did have that uh, footage of him 
presenting Othello to an audience at the Orson Welles Cinema. Hmm. That was previous to, to the F for Fake. You know, it's interesting that uh, the film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, but it couldn't find a, an American distributor. It was, uh, I think it was released in Europe in 1952 pretty much immediately, but it didn't get to the United States until uh, uh, 1954. And, uh, and, and even then, uh, very few people saw it. Did you ever uh, get to play, um, did you ever book Othello at the Coolidge, David? No, and you know, when I was saying to Peter earlier that I wasn't even aware, I mean, when I saw it here uh, a week and a half ago, it's the first time I'd seen the film. I mean, with all of the film stuff I do, mm. and to my knowledge, it wasn't available. Hmm. And it, it, it's shown so rarely that, you know, that, the way I've always done things is films coming to town. I'm not going to miss this under any circumstances. Uh, like maybe tomorrow night, report on the party and his guest kind of thing. Mm. I you know, might do that. But Othello, and I, then when, uh, yes, the uh, Brattle this, earlier this year, had it for four days, saw Peter's review, I said, I got to go see it, and I couldn't get there. Hmm. So, yeah. It's, it's strange, and I don't know much about this, that uh, his daughter, Beatrice Wells, has um, taken legal action to keep the film from being uh, released. And in, in, in much, I guess, the same way that... Uh, there'd been some legal wrangling over the footage from uh, the other side of the wind. Uh, kind of, I'm, I'm curious as to why she would do that. Which um, one is this? Uh, Othello. Othello? Yeah. There had for the longest time, I guess uh, it hadn't been available. Yeah, I don't and, know. And uh, she'd taken um, some legal action and it, it resulted in having the uh, Criterion laser disc of Othello uh, become out of print. So I saw it on uh I think it was VH, VHS back in the 80s. That was the, the time I'd seen it previous to seeing it on the screen at the, at the Brattle. Hmm. So I, I don't know what its, uh, what its checkered history is. I mean, he's, a, he's a, uh, a very tragic kind of figure in that so much he, he could uh, have well, done so much and that he did so much and a lot of it is, has been lost or mangled in some way. I wonder how it did at the box office. I wonder... Um, a lot of it is his own fault, too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. How you and you would say that because I think it likes self-destructive impulses. Yeah. yeah, he was a very he's compulsive a person. He he's a self-professed pessimist. I would be too if <laughs> if I had some of his bad luck. Um, but you know, he he would do like the the, the thing he uh, he made um, magnificent Ambersons, and then before he was done, he went to he went to Mexico to make it's all oh, true, right? right? It's all true, yeah. And uh, while he was really away, the, the, the I showed that at the Coolidge, I think. In fact, I know I did. Milestone Films had it. Yeah, but I'm dying to see. Uh, I hear they're they're restoring um, uh, Chimes at Midnight. Really? I've heard mm. that somewhere. Don't know. Maybe in a dream. I have no idea. But uh, but you know, Chimes at Midnight. I'm you know, thinking of uh, he's having fun with that for fake. Uh, you know, the image of him as Falstaff mm. uh, is um, it, it's a film that's of a piece. I think mm-hmm. opposed to assembled in pieces the way this one Othello is. You know, here we're doing this thing for... Uh, uh, and also, uh, Falstaff is kind of like, um, plays the same role as Iago, except he's a he's mm-hmm. a good friend. And it's uh, Prince Hal, the person he's friends with, who Turns betrays him. him. So it's kind of like the inverse of... I know uh, the not old man. Yeah. yeah. And that seems cruel. Uh, in spite of the fact there's much nobility, Hal goes into uh, Henry V. Uh, that's what I'm looking forward to times at midnight. Uh but it is interesting that here we are, 
well, we've done these podcasts over, well, this is number 32. We're going to do Othello for, we did Throne of Blood. Okay, I can sort of buy the reasoning on doing Throne of Blood well, for a horror magazine. But um, then we have Othello here. But I have to admit, the uh, Iago character here is truly horrific. It's, it's, it's dark and tragic. It's, it's at times, it's a, it's a brooding film. So I, well, it starts I, I out like uh, I mean it preceded it, but it's very reminiscent of the Seventh Seal. Those the procession, mm-hmm. oh, that's right? Yeah, uh, like the um, the silhouetted figures, a procession, one going up, one going down, the huge cross, uh, all the cowled monk figures, yeah, the, the coffins, the and so forth. It's sort of like a you know the Dance of Death almost from the Seventh Seal. I, I wonder if Bergman was actually inspired by seeing that to. Uh, uh, you know, to, to use that image. It's amazing to me that with all he, all that Wells went through, that he was able to conceptually keep this all together in his mind and make it work piece by piece over four years. At, and at, during that time, he, he he probably started and stopped and, you know, half finished like a dozen different projects. He was doing like Don Quixote. He was doing all kinds of different, I he was trying to do all, the, all these different uh, other projects, and then he also did the Third Man and like three or four other and movies. Prince of Foxes, Prince a twentieth-century Fox film with Jerome Power hmm. and Wanda Hendricks. Oh. Wanda Hendricks is that a name you haven't thought of in forty years or fifty years? Ah, uh, it's doing, you're doing something to my head here. <laughs> Flashing back to that's out of the blue. Watching a Wanda Hendricks movie on TV in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd uh, he'd uh, use the money and put it right back into Othello. Oh yeah, and he also had his, some of his actors go in to do movies and have them use their money to. David, uh, Peter, thanks for taking the time to uh, talk about Othello and uh, a little bit of F for Fake. Okay. Our pleasure. My pleasure. Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. David is speaking for both of us. Yes, yeah. there you go. <laughs> but he's correct. It's my pleasure. Too. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can visit us online at diaboliquemagazine.com. And of course, don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Diabolique magazine. If you have any comments about the Diabolique webcast, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at steve at horrorunlimited.com. I'm Stephen Slaughterhead. Until next time, so long, everyone.